repent. That's especially meaningful to me because I have a deaf sister, and I've seen her serve the Lord in her lifetime. And so to see the work of Southern Baptists among the deaf is a great blessing to our family. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Now, I've had two sets of guests say, where was the preacher from last year? Well, he's in Texas, and uh, I'm the substitute, and I'm not the new guy, I'm just a substitute, but he has moved on to a church in Texas doing a great work there, and so I am an, the interim pastor, temporary, until this church finds a new permanent pastor, so that's who I am. For those of you who are wondering, what happened to that other guy, the, the real guy, where is he, all right? All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Ruthie will read the scripture for us. And then we'll bring the message. And Jesus said, let the little children come. I hear one out there. <laughs> yes, you. <laughs> On Matthew 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples gathered around him. And he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn. For they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble. For they shall inherit the whole earth. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Father, thank you so much for your love for us. And I pray, Lord, for everyone that is here this morning, for the burdens that they bring with them and the, um, the life issues that they carry. I pray, Lord, that uh, we will love uh, people with a love as you love them, that we'll see their hurts. Break our hearts, Lord, for what breaks yours. Thank you that we get to stand and, and be a witness for you. And represent you, and Lord, I pray that you keep us in a right relationship with you. Because we are known by your name. We love you, beautiful Savior. Amen. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. It's such a startling uh, fact that it forces us to be careful in interpreting it. Whenever you're coming to a, a verse like this and it just sort of stuns you, you have to stop and be careful to make sure that you understand for sure. Because uh, not every type of sadness blesses. This is a world of tears, lined with troubles, all kinds of difficulties. And just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're going to have any fewer problems than people who are lost. Because we share in the common lot of humanity. We share in the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so all of us have natural sorrows, natural troubles. That's just a part of our lives. And those troubles in and of themselves are neutral. They're neither helpful nor harmful. Just the troubles and difficulties of life, they make us better or worse depending on how we respond to them. For some people... Trouble draws them closer to the Lord. For other people, it pushes them farther away. For some people, trouble makes them softer. Other people, the same thing will make harder. 
Some more unselfish, others more selfish. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a young man in church, before I married Ruthie, one of my last Sunday school teachers in those days, I was one of the godliest men I've ever known. Wonderful servant of the Lord. He was my Sunday school teacher. He was a great man. His son, little son, died. He never darkened the door of a church again as long as he lived. In my first pastorate in seminary, my seminary pastorate, we had a man in that church who loved the Lord passionately. They said he could remember a time when he didn't love the Lord that much. And the thing that made the difference was when his son died. You see the difference? Son died, and this father left the Lord. This man, son died, and it brought him to the Lord. So, so natural suffering, the normal problems of life, worsen people as often as it helps people. So when you speak of a mourning that is blessed, a sadness that God is saying you can find happiness in, Jesus had to be referring to a specific type of sorrow. Now, you're going to see the screen here. This is the whole sermon, two points, basically. Mourning is blessed under two conditions. There they are. Number one, when it rises from the right cause and then rises to the right cure. Now, we're going to leave that up there because you need to see that. That's what the sermon is all about. It's not all type of suffering, not all type of problems, but the type of mourning that Jesus is talking about is one that starts in the right cause. Now, if we're going to understand what Jesus said here, what he meant by the right cause, what is he talking about? We must remember the context. He is talking to a group of people who are politically mad. They hate Rome. They despise being under the leadership of the emperor. They hate it. And so Jesus is standing before people who are politically mad, and he is saying to them, now let's make sure that we understand that the kingdom I'm talking about has nothing to do with politics, that I'm not here to encourage you to be angry at Rome. I'm here to help you be sad about your own flaws and your own sin. Israel was full of anger, but Jesus is saying, I sure would like to see some repentance about your own life. You all know that Martin Luther started the Reformation when he nailed his 95 theses to the door. Actually, he nailed one, and there were 94 others. There was the one. There's one the number one is the one thesis that people remember and know. The number one thesis is that when our master said repent, he meant for our entire life to be one of repentance. All the other 94 are just corollary. That was the lesson that Luther was saying, that the Christian life is in here. It's not in sacraments. It's not in earning your way out of purgatory, those kinds of things. The Christian life is totally in here, one of repentance from the first moment until you die. You are always repenting. You live in a state of repentance. I have never, in all of my years of ministry, my 51 years of ministry, I have never fallen on my face before God, and cried out to him about sins in my life. Never one time without every time I've done it. Before I get to the doorknob. I can think of something I forgot to pray about. Some sin that I did not mention. Some failure I forgot to cover. All of life is 
repentance. So the blessed mourners, the people who we could say happy are the sad, are those who are brokenhearted over their own sin. They understand the godly sorrow of a tender conscience. Now, th- this is, now, that's the context of the crowd. Now, let's set it in the context of the verse, of, of, the, of the passage, because any text out of context is a pretext. Jesus had just said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And what he meant was, those who know that they're not strong enough to cure their own f- spiritual problems, who know they have no merit. He said, so in this kingdom, rather than anger about politics being the ruling thing, Rather than being upset, the ruling thing is going to be people who understand they are sinners. Who understand they are poor in spirit. They are weak in and of themselves. They don't have the power to overcome. And also they know they cannot merit, they cannot earn God's favor. And because that's true, they mourn. They are sorry. They are sad. Because the difference of what they are and what God wants them to be breaks their heart. Now, not only is this a grieving for our sins, but also for the sins of others. Jesus is talking to an angry, bitter crowd who, if they had sat on the Mount of Olives and looked over Jerusalem, they would have been upset. They would have been mad because Roman soldiers were there. They were controlling the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, at the same spot, looking out over the city of Jerusalem, he did what? He wept. You see the difference? He's saying to people, you're missing the point here. You are upset about the political status. I have come to talk to you about your spiritual life. I long for the time when I can hear Christians speak of America's sins more with brokenness than with anger. Do you think there's anybody left in the country that doesn't know what Baptists believe about the social issues of our day? We, we, we've earned the reputation of being cultural hit men. Uh, we definitely earned it. There will be no revival in our land until God's people learn again how to mourn over their own sins and mourn over the sins of people. There will be no revival until we understand that we must hear what's going on in our society, we must hear what's going on in our culture, and we must be sad about it. For one thing, we ought to mourn that there aren't any more mourners. There's so few people that really care. There are people angry, but there aren't very many people who just, their hearts are really broken. I was reading again this morning the story of the woman who came to bless Jesus. Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee, and the Pharisees, they thought they were better than everybody else. And so here's Jesus reclining. The Jews would eat with their, like on a couch. Your legs would be stuck out this way. You'd put your elbow right here beside the table, and so the Jews ate like this. This is the way you eat. That's how John, the beloved, can be leaning on Jesus' breast. He's just leaning back against Jesus at the Last Supper, right? So Jesus, this is how they would eat. So Jesus is here in this home of a man who feels he's better than everybody else. And all of a sudden, there's a disturbance at his feet. There is a woman who has come with an alabaster box of perfume, which would have been, it could be her life savings. That's one of the ways that people... A stored money. There was gold and there were other ways. But one of the ways was to expensive perfumes. So she bought an alabaster box and she's come to anoint his feet. But before she could anoint his feet, suddenly she breaks into tears. And she begins to weep and her tears are so heavy on the feet of Jesus 
that she takes her hair and she cleans the feet of Jesus with her own tears before she put the alabaster boxed perfume on him. Now here's a woman who's so concerned about her own spiritual condition, who cared so much that she literally is weeping, she's convulsing. And as I read that again, it made me wonder about myself. When was the last time I cried even a thimble full of tears over lostness? When was the last time I really cared about what was happening to lost people and what was happening to people who are in sin? We have plenty of sins in our age. Hypermaterialism, we worship the almighty dollar. Practical atheism, people living as if God doesn't exist. Profaning the name of God, being, being, uh, treating His name as not holy. The sins, that they're all over us. But instead of us being angry, there should come a time where we should feel this tremendous burden of sadness. We need to more, be more sensitive and be weeping, but it is easier to condemn people. Now, why is that the case? Why is it easier to condemn people than to care? That's a good question. It's because mad is less painful than sad. A fellow that Ruthie and I love very much. He's going on to be with the Lord now. But in situations where he should respond with sadness in the family and things going on, he would get mad. And what was going on there? Well, he was demonstrating to an extreme that mad is less painful than sad. Now, I learned that because of my 35-year battle with depression, and I still, God gave me a victory over depression, but I still struggle with it. I still uh, have to be very careful. I treat depression like an alcoholic treats alcohol. Always very careful about it. Read stuff all the time to make sure I'm learning. One of the great turning points was, I, I began to realize that since mad is less painful than sad, when things would go wrong, I would get mad. But then your body cannot stay mad forever because the stressors will give you a heart attack. You'll have a stroke. You can't stay mad. So mad finally turns back into sad. But what causes depression for me, and if anybody ever talks to everybody about depression, don't listen to them. Everybody has their own uh, traits and characteristics in depression. But what's happening to me, I thought I was depressed over what I was sad about. But I was actually depressed over what I was mad about that rather than be sad, let it be mad, and then it floated back into sadness. Well, where the church of the United States is, we are in the mad phase because it's less painful than sad. For 300 years, we enjoyed being the king of the roost. Christianity ruled the roost. We were at the top. We were number one. But now as our society has shifted, we're now becoming just one of the players. And that, that's not all bad. There's, that's a lot of Baptists are champions of religious freedom. Uh, we are, we're finding ourselves in a time when we're contradicting some of the things we've always believed. It is okay for us not to have the special place. It's okay for us to be one of many. But in the slipping from the mad to the sad, it's been easier to be mad. And now we're going to have to go from mad to sad, even though sad is more painful than mad. And so right now, the culture needs to see our tears, not hear our jeers. They need to see utter grief and heartache. 
we've cajoled enough. You know, we, we've, we've pushed and we've shoved. We've done everything that we can. But there is one thing left to us, and that is utter brokenness. A total sadness that the world sees. Uh, parents, learn a lesson here. Uh, my dad, who was a preacher, uh, dad was, he was a good dad. Dad would spank us. He'd take a belt off. Isn't it amazing how that uh, when you're getting spanked, a, a daddy can pull the belt out, and it sounds like a machine gun going, <laughs> it's one of the scariest things in the world. That's why you were given a middle name, by the way. When you hear the middle name, it can save you from hearing the clatter, 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 okay? He would say John. If I didn't do it, he'd say John Edward. Then he'd do this. This was the real warning sign. When he'd grab his belt like that and hold it like that. That's when I knew it's time to move because something was about to happen. One good. Well, when I was about 12 years old, some friends and I stole a wooden crate of Coca-Colas from the vacation Bible school. Went out in the woods behind the church and we drank every one of them. I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't have done it. But doggone, we were out there drinking those Cokes. We were having a great time. Later, I was standing beside my dad and one of the dear old saint ladies of the church saying, how could anybody steal from a church? And I was standing there saying, that's right. That's right, yeah. <laughs> About a month later, my dad found out. I thought I was going to die. I'm serious. I did. Now, I'm serious. He closed every shade in the house. He told my mother to leave with my sister and my brother. It's just me and him. And I was 12 years old. I didn't even have a will yet. I mean, I was in trouble. It was sad. I thought he was going to kill me. My daddy walked over to me with that belt of his. And he laid it down, wadded up, circling on the coffee table. He said, you know, son, I'm sorry you did it. But he said, but what really breaks my heart was you lied to me. And he turned and walked away. It's one of the most effective things my dad ever did to me. I saw his broken heart. And it helped me. Ruthie and I have some friends who are our age. And they have a daughter who's in, their, in her 50s, maybe something like that. Maybe late 40s. But, and she's getting ready to go down a path of really bad sin. And we're together talking of force of the four of us. So we're talking about this daughter going, heading off into sin after a life of serving the Lord. And the, and the parents are saying they've told her what they believe. And Ruthie, just as compassionately as Ruthie can, and she's so gentle, Ruthie said to her friend, to this mother, but have you told her that this is breaking your heart? You've told her where you stand. You've drawn the line. She knows that. But do you know, does she know this is breaking your heart? Parents, listen to me. Your children know where you stand. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to figure that out. They know what you believe. You can state it, say it. But have you ever looked at your children, you old people, have you looked at your 50-year-old child, and you young people, have you looked at your 12, 15-year-old child, have you looked them in the eye, and with a tear in your eye, have you said to them, you are killing me? Have you wept over them? Have they heard you pray in brokenness over them? So, we need to learn to grieve over sin. God help us to grieve for the right reason, and that's sin. So, the first thing is, blessed mourning is that which rises from the right cause, from spiritual failure. 
But then it also is that which rises to the right cure. The mourners who blessed are blessed are those who see the problem, but then quickly go through it praying to God and find comfort in God. There, uh, Christian mourning is not meant to make us murmurers and whiners. God does not want us miserable. There are no extra points for walking around like you're sad. There's no virtue for acting like you were baptized in vinegar. It just doesn't, you don't get extra credit for that. The Holy Spirit comes to us. He is the comforter. And so what do you want you to do? He wants you to go through mourning. He wants you to go through the suffering and the sadness. But then he has a blessed result on the back end of that. Christianity is the only religion in the world. Only one. That teaches you that suffering and trouble and sadness can be good. Now, why do we believe that? Every other religion in the world either says avoid it, suppress it, pretend it doesn't exist. Why does Christianity say we believe that suffering can be good? We believe that because our God suffered. And if our God came to this planet... And suffered. For God to do it, there must be something in there somewhere that can be a virtue. Uh, the, book that, the, the book that changed my life on suffering is Tim Keller's book. Well, there's four copies of them back there. Tim Keller's book on suffering. You ought to buy one as you go out. It's the greatest thing. He's the one that taught me this concept. I'd never seen this before. Maybe two or three years ago. It's like somebody turned a light on in my head and I thought, Whoa. I do not have to assume that I'm outside the will of God because I suffer. I, I don't have to be morose. I don't have to be miserable. I don't have to be walking like I'm baptized in vinegar. I can come unto Him and I can see somewhere in this that somewhere my God, He suffered and He used it for good. Somewhere in this, the same can happen for me. So true godly sorrow never leaves you stranded in grief. It always contains confidence that it's going to find solace in God. We find comfort knowing that in our sorrow we can find Him. One of my life quotes, I have maybe 10, 15 life quotes I keep in my prayer folder, and I read them on different days of the week. And one of my life quotes is Charles Wesley in one of his songs. He says, I am weak, yet confident in self-despair. Now, every one of you in this room misunderstood what he just said. It took me a while to catch it. He's saying, I am weak. And you and I would think, well, he's weak and he's in self-despair, but he's going to be confident anyway. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am going to be confident because I'm in self-despair. He's saying, because it's hopeless, because there's sorrow, because there's brokenness, I'm going to be confident. We just have to make sure that it's a godly sorrow. The Bible says godly sorrow brings repentance, but worldly sorrow brings death. We've got to learn what kind of mourning is the right kind of mourning. I, uh, see, some people can mourn over their sin and not come to the right cure. When I was pastor in St. Louis, right at the end of my pastorate there, we had, he had a young man in our church. He was a teenager. He's a fine young man. And he had a girlfriend, and, and they went too far. And he was completely devastated by guilt. 
and he took his own life. That's one of the hardest things of my ministry. You, you, so you see, there can be a mourning over sin. You can be so sad over sin that the sin itself becomes a sin. That the, the mourning can become a sin. Now, the great example of these two, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, is Peter and Judas. On the same night, these two disciples of Jesus failed him. The leader of the disciples, Simon Peter, denied Jesus three times, caught the gaze of Christ, and then he went out and he wept bitterly. In fact, Clement of Alexandria, one of the church fathers, shared the tradition that Peter, for the rest of his life, every time he heard a rooster crow, he cried. We do not know if that's true, but nevertheless, we do know that Peter's mourning, his sadness was blessed. Within 60 hours of his terrible denial, he's back online, he's forgiven, he's serving God, and he's running to an empty tomb with another disciple, John the Beloved. That's godly sorrow, working repentance. But now look at worldly sorrow, bringing death. The same night, about the same time, Judas Iscariot also disappoints the Lord. He also does something that he should not do. He betrayed the Master. He even confessed his sin. He truly grieved. But Judas is in hell today because his sorrow drove him to despair rather than to Jesus. Judas did not go to hell because he betrayed Jesus. Judas went to hell because he believed he had committed a sin worse than what the grace of God could forgive. That was his ultimate sin. His despair was worse than his treason. Now, the great example for us of this, this proper understanding of mourning and, and comfort, and they go together, is, of course, the Apostle Paul. There's never been a more confident, joyful, strong personality than Paul the Apostle. He's, he's one of the top three, four, five of the greatest men who ever lived. He always had purpose. He was always driven. You wouldn't have been around him very long and thought he's so sad and he's so depressed. And yet he himself said one time, he said, I am always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Always mourning, always being comforted. Now, how do you do that? Last week, um, our grandson who's at uh, Hickory Hill Schools in Springfield, the middle school. His team, uh, relay team, won second place in the regionals. And so the, they came out, they came second place, and my grandson, his buddies, by the way, he was elected student body president this week. Did I mention my grandson? Anyway, let's get up, get up, okay. He's standing on the, you know, we're all taking pictures and everything. So he's standing up here and we're all clapping. And yet the, the track event's still going on. No, they're not stopping. You got the discus over here. You got the shot put over here. You got the triple jump going on. You got the high jump. You got the long jump. It's like everything is still going on. And that is the exact picture of what it means to live the Christian life. Just pretend that you're the one on the victor's mound, but you're also involved in all those others at the same time. So the Christian life, you mourn over some sin, and God forgives you, and you feel the strength. You go to the winter stand, you stand there, 
And you feel it. You sense it. God has forgiven me. It's okay. Thank you, God. But at the same time, some other issue in your life, you are face down on the ground. You are crying out to God. You are sorrowful, as sad as you can be. And so you go back and forth. You're up here. Thank you, God. Amen. You're rejoicing. But at the same time, you're down here. You've got five, six, or seven things that you're going through that you've got to get through. You've got to come to the place where you're comforted by the Lord. And so you spend your whole life like this. Up. Down. This is what you do. Now, if you think the Christian life is this, you finally get to some place where, oh man, everything's great and wonderful. You're never going to be a successful Christian. Pride will bring you down. You never think that you have finally gotten here and there's not all these other troubles going on in your life. But at the same time, you don't live down here where you never get up on the stand. You never feel the comfort of the Lord. You never feel His strength. You never feel His blessing. You are always going back and forth, back and forth. That's how you live the Christian life. You rejoice, but there's always other things going on. And so you battle them one at a time, and you rejoice. More, and this lasts for a lifetime. You never get to where you finally stand here. There's no troubles and no problems. You are always going back and forth. I think that's enough for this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Now, where does the message meet you? That's the whole purpose of preaching and hearing. I came today, I hope, (laughs) under an anointing of the Spirit to speak. And you came here, I hope, under an anointing of the Spirit to hear. And therefore, when those two things go together, something should happen in the music or the praying or the preaching. Some 